Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm your host, Michael Dowd. And in this conversation, I speak with one of about a half a dozen sustainability experts and regeneration uh, professionals. Uh, Josie Plout is the Associate Director for the Institute for the Built Environment at uh, Colorado State University. Uh, she's a regenerative practitioner and a strategic and development facilitator. And her specialties are systemic thinking and sustainability, green building, and a whole range of things related to regeneration. I enjoyed this conversation and I think you will too. For people who aren't familiar with you and your work, if you could just help us have a sense of who you are, what you bring to the table, what you're particularly um, passionate about, or, or you know, sort of a little professional background, but also what you're concerned about or passionate about these days. I think that in my life, I've been on a pursuit for understanding um, and and harmonizing and looking at how humans sort of do things and why they do things. So looking into human, human motivation, will, um, and, and so that's, that's sort of the theme that crosses over a lot of it with always a very kind of subtle um, spiritual underpinning. Uh, and I say that because I also looked into your work a little bit um, and, and perhaps somewhat differently, it's not something that I sort of wear out on my sleeve most of the time, but it is certainly um, a very deep undercurrent in, in the work that I do and the way that I see my work and my role in the world. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> as a young person uh, or a younger person, I took interest in sustainability as a concept in harmonization of human behavior and actions and societies and how we sort of bring those together uh, and, and could do that in a way that had, again, kind of alignment harmonization. And that's taken me on a path of discovery around um, sort of human motivation. So early on, I started out with the idea that, you know, if you can just make a good business case, we live in the Western world in a capitalist society and that, you know, that, uh, that should do the trick. Um, and, <laughs> um, and, and so, you know, that, um, it's interesting to look back on that because in some ways there's some truth to that. Like, as I look at the, the movements that are happening and shifting towards say a renewable energy economy, for example, uh, there's actually quite a bit of a, a business case, and especially as renewable energy has become less expensive than new coal, for example. Um, and yet, as I look back on it, I see that that is a um, that it's still rooted in an old paradigm of exploitation and extraction and oppression. And so, um, it even further points to the misgivings that I had early on in the journey, right? Sure. Um, and so over time, I've continued to uh, follow this idea of how to create meaningful change uh, towards aligning human behaviors and human society toward um, natural living systems. Mm -hmm. And um, 
so that's brought me to the work around regenerative design and development, which is uh, part of a, a lineage that actually has a very deep past and lineage. Uh, it, it builds off of a lot of ancient wisdom traditions uh, and, and spiritual teachings, but it's really, uh, for me and, and those that I am learning from and working with, it's very much grounded in a um, in an epistemology and in a worldview uh, that has to do with raising consciousness um, and using living systems as the as the primary guide and, and model for um, for how we design our lives, our work, our families, our businesses, our interactions in the world. There are those who are probably more well equipped to speak wholly to uh, this, this lineage and this way of thinking uh, and, and really working in the world. So it's, it's more than a way of thinking, but it's uh, very much an applied practice. So uh, it belongs to the, those in the world who sort of believe that the content and matter of life is the spiritual practice, um, that that is something that happens in every articulation of our being, our thinking, our relating to one another, that, that life is the, the matter for spiritual development. Um, but the, the abbreviated version that I'm able to share is that I've been working with um, others in, in the regenerative field, including uh, those who are affiliated with Regenesis, uh, namely Pamela Mang, uh, Bill Reed, Joel Glansberg, uh, ben Haggard and and others who are affiliated with their group, as well as Carol Sanford, um, who works primarily in the in the business world, looking at how we can uh, bring regenerative business ideas into business into you know commerce. Um, and Carol and Pamela both studied under a man named Charlie Crone, um, and. They are. They sort of have ties back to what is called a fourth way school. Uh, the teachings of Gurdjieff uh, come up in that, um, and I, I am, you know, on the very edge of a of a learning community, um, with an understanding of the that there are deep roots and and I don't um, I don't know all of how it goes back, but that's fine. Um, yeah, but it's but it's a um, but speaking to the epistemology is important, um, you know. So it goes back to these ideas around uh, basically testing and learning and owning ideas for yourself. Um, they they really work against an expert model, but work to cultivate self capacity to see and learn and test and understand and use um, dynamic living systems frameworks as one of the ways to help do that. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, that all can start to sound a little bit abstract if it's not grounded in reality, um, but it is some of the underpinnings of the more externally facing or forward facing work that, that I do in the world. Say a little bit about like what on a week by week, month by month, season by season basis, um, what is it that you focus on and do? Yeah, so my, um, I engage in a few different things. Uh, I, I lead a couple of organizations. 
So that in and of itself is a practice, organizational leadership and development and how you uh, manage and govern and uh, create learning opportunities for others within the context of that and how you attract business. Um, so, so that's sort of one, I would say, area of practice mm -hmm. um, is business leadership and development. Um, and then more specifically, my service area, if you will, or the services that I offer uh, are around education and facilitation. So I work with diverse groups of stakeholders, um, often in the built environment in some form or fashion, and uh, bring them together to start to see a common vision or potential for what they're doing and uh, ways to bring that forward in the world. Um, the nature of that work can be a project team for a single building, but increasingly doing work at the organizational and at the neighborhood scale or the community scale. So for the community scale projects, for example, you end up or I end up working in the public engagement realm, bringing together often very diverse stakeholders, um, you know, whether that's environmentalists, business people, labor unions, communities of color, to the same table, mm -hmm. to start to talk and see um, the ways that they're connected to one another uh, to start to address the differences perhaps that exist in the way that they're seeing and experiencing the world. Uh, and there are times when that work is just powerful beyond my own um, understanding of it. I, 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 I kind of don't have words for it, but to be able to bring diverse groups of people together to see each other to hear each other, to come into relationship with each other, and to see that their plights and struggles are not so different from one another. Um, that's, that's powerful work for me. One of the things that I didn't, I had never heard of before and noticed um, on, uh, I think it was the uh, Colorado State University bio page there of you, is this, uh, this framework, the lenses framework. Say a little bit about that. Sure. Um, so lenses is a, is a framework that we've been working on for about 10 years. Uh, and the idea is to, you know, create a, a process framework. So not a checklist or, you know, list of standards and here's what good looks like and here's your scorecard and here's how you did on the scorecard. But how do you go about understanding truly place sourced potential? Um, and then how do you begin to match that with what your project or endeavor is seeking to do in the world and start to create a greater aim or potential? And a lot of that can be focused around what, what is the pow powerful narrative or focus um, around what needs to be healed, renewed, regenerated, and, and so that becomes something that adds a lot more significance to a particular endeavor, which has meaning of its own, but it's connecting that endeavor to something that is much bigger. Uh, and so lenses is, um, is a framework that helps us hold that complexity and to be able to move forward and, and have some sense making out of it.
Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Anything you'd like to say about significant moments, any particular books or mentors or yeah. times during that? How was that emotionally for you? So, so feel free to take a good chunk of time in terms of sharing your journey, your story of um, sort of your worldview and where it is now. I can couch my story and what I think is the bigger narrative that you're pointing towards somewhat together. Um, and it, it occurred to me maybe 18 months ago or so that um, the first half of my life and much of the environmental movement had been in various stages of grieving and that most environmentalists and whatnot had been heavily focusing on the bargaining stage of grief. So if we can only do this, then we can have, you know, then, then it's all going to be okay. Um, And that was the first half of my career, right? A very optimistic, very, you know, sort of, Hey, you know, we just have to work hard and see these things and make these changes. And that's, that's all bargaining. Right. And then, and then I see my, my friends and at times myself, um, you know, be in various stages of anger and grief, like sadness Mm -hmm. um, and depression and, and a sense of fear and hopelessness or being angry at, at, all of the things that have come to pass. Um, and certainly I think for ourselves, I think it's easy to point the finger outward on this, but I think even those of us who um, were more in it, denial is a, um, is a natural part of the grieving process as well. Um, and I want to be clear that I don't think it's just them out there that are in denial, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's not, um, but, but for ourselves. And um, and the shift that happened for me recently was uh, asking the question of what is it to move into a place of acceptance? And that acceptance is not a place of resignation. Exactly. Right? So so acceptance in the grieving process, there is a, a certain amount of reckoning with this is, where things are actually at, um, but it doesn't. But there's a lot to do with that also once you're in that space. Yeah, I, right? I see. A, I see uh, acceptance in that sense as surrendering to reality on reality's terms, breathing with that, feeling that, and then coming through to the place of okay, what's the gift? What's my work to do? Where can I make a difference? How can I be involved? And how can I wake up? on a day-by-day basis, being a blessing to people in my life and to the world and to the future, to the degree I can. Exactly, exactly. So it, it, it's a, it feels like a very different space for me to be in. And this conversation just seemed very timely on a, on a number of different fronts around that, um, around exactly that, yeah. everything yeah. you just said. Yeah. So, um, so that has been the shift that, that I've kind of made. Um, and then, you know, yeah, how, how do I be present to what 
this reality, you know, what reality is and, and how do I contribute in the face of that and drawing on um, the loss of my father at a medium young age, my late 20s. Mm. Um, but being an only child and, you know, being very much there in that process with him that was relatively quick. Um, but, but nonetheless, I feel like that is a, a lesson that gives me an opportunity to um, draw on now as well. Yeah, yeah. So, well, you know, one of the questions I was going to ask a little bit later, but I, I think I'd rather just lean into it now with you, if you're open to it, is, is how did that personal experience um, of your dad's uh, dying and death, how did that inform you, support you? I mean, how does, how does thinking about mortality in general, your own, your father's, our species, whatever, how does thinking about impermanence and, and mortality, death, uh, uh, nourish you or in some way inform you uh, in what you're now thinking and feeling? So I have been probably, I believe, somewhat unusually attuned to death and impermanence from a very young age. It's something that I've thought a lot about that crosses my mind on just a very regular, consistent basis. Um, I don't know what the source of that is. Hmm. I can't. I can't pinpoint that. But um, I've always had this sort of keen awareness of impermanence and let that guide me in my relationships with people. Um, I, don't, I don't have regrets, um, barring two very particular regrets, and perhaps not ironically, that both have to do with death and dying. Um, but, but it's helped me to live, um, I think, a very clean and honest and present life uh, because that reality is so forward for me um, that it affects the way that I show up in the world. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, one of the questions that Connie is, is um, has just been inviting me to ask, I didn't ask it for many of the first interviews, but in, in terms of some of the personal, I mean, most of us are in relationship to either spouses or, you know, boyfriends, girlfriends, you know, partners, um, parents, um, siblings who may not be where we are and who are in some different place in terms of how they see our predicament, our world, the future. And that can be challenging, um, deeply challenging. Um, uh, we stayed uh, recently in, in Canada uh, with, uh, with a couple, uh, and the minister um, was very engaged in these ideas, and his wife really didn't, didn't want to go there, and, and that was, there, was, uh, there was some serious challenge there. I'm curious, um, in this process, especially because some of this is pretty recent, it sounds like in the last year and a half, two years for you, um, is there anything that you would like to share in terms of um, 
um, the process of coming to grips with a contracting, deteriorating future, still engaged in this good work of planting seeds of regeneration and restoration and, and reconciliation with the larger body of life and so forth. But how has that been for you relationally for any, any, anyone who's close in your life? How has that been for you? I don't, I don't mean to totally keep doing this, but I think it, um, so, so the way that I'm going to respond to that is that uh, what I've noticed lately is that I I, I'm really curious about humanity's predilection with Armageddon or end of time stories. <clears throat> um, and I, I, I've been just exploring for myself what I think that is about. Uh, like why, you know, like I feel like people have thought that somewhat perpetually for a really long time. And in some ways it always is the end of times. Right? Like in some ways the world is always transitioning and moving and shifting and it's not the world that it was. And why did my great grandparents travel here from, you know, Saxony or wherever they came from? Like it was, it was a thing because they saw the end of times in their place. They saw a shifting reality and transition that no longer seemed tenable to them. And they went to a place of other opportunities. Exactly. Um, you know, the Mayan calendar has, you know, this built into it. And so, so I've been contemplating that um, and thinking about uh, that being tied to this question you're asking about our sense of our own mortality, both as individuals, as species, as countries, as mm -hmm. whatever it is. Like, so there's this consciousness that I think we hold as life forms and as conscious life forms, and maybe consciousness is everywhere and embedded in everything. I, I don't, I don't know. Um, but there's an, there's an inherent awareness of the fact that, you know, life builds up and it collapses and it builds up and it collapses. And I think that that, you know, if we look at all of the previous mass extinctions, if we look at the lives of the people around us, of countries, of civilizations, we look at all the history, it's this continual process mm -hmm. of, you know, change, mm -hmm. transitions, whatever it is. So I think, I think we hold that consciousness and it drives this fascination with, and it's more, I mean, fascination banalizes it and that's not fair. Mm -hmm. um, because it's, it's, it's very real and it's very heavy and difficult in, in so many ways. But this predilection, I guess, toward the end of times. So, so, and I reflect on that because in my own sort of sense of like turning a corner, right? So I, I felt that deeply and personally that we've turned a corner. Um, and that there are others in my life who are at various stages of that, some much darker mm -hmm. and, and more, uh, negative about it than I, uh, others 
far into the denial spectrum, right? So it's all that's happening. I can't sort of help but observe this phenomenon. And um, and I guess regardless of how it works itself out in these particular turnings, and if it, if I if I follow my my narrative around you know, that there may be a, uh, one of the words that my husband offered not too long ago was a reckoning. Yeah. There may be a reckoning. Yeah. Um, and there, there very well will, at some point there will be, mm-hmm. right? Whether that's in my lifetime or, or my daughter's or anyone else's. Um, or a great transition is another way. I know you looked at language a little bit in the questions that you sent. So, so great transition and also reckoning are kind of the language that have been working for me. Um, it's a little softer, perhaps, than post-doom or, um, you know, the, I, there were some other terms that you brought forward that were pretty, they felt maybe a little... Yeah, the extinction of whole little, colossus is pretty intense. <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, I I tend to be a little softer on that um, because because that is, to me, um, there's an intensity of energy around some of that that is still very Mm -hmm. human-centric that that misses some of this, the, what, what for me is in my spiritual path is, is the nuance of, um, graciousness, acceptance, uh, being, again, just being present to and caring and compassionate within what is. Mm -hmm. And those seem to be laden with, um, with a lot of anthropocentric, trick ideas, um, even when it's around, you know, people will try to play the card or, or they, they'll, they'll say it's about, you know, the, the collapse of other life forms, not just humans. And I, I understand that, but to me in the, um, in the space of being in it or present to it, um, I shy away a little bit from language that seems inflammatory or mm-hmm. apocalyptic or, or that kind of thing because of what it evokes in me and what I believe it evokes in others. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, my own sense of things, if I were to try, I don't think I've shared this in this way in any of these conversations yet. It's just occurring to me as, you, as I was listening to you. If I were to try to articulate in the most concise way that I know how, is that evolution, most people mistakenly think evolution is about ongoing, continual, everlasting change. Turns out that when you look, step back and look at the evolution of life, evolution is mostly about stability, constancy, no change or very little change. And then something happens, an earthquake, volcano, you know, super volcano, asteroid, drought, famine, whatever, hurricane. And then 
everything needs to adapt. And so evolution is about adapting to what's so, uh, this sort of, you know, serious change and then adapting to that the best you can and those that adapt survive and pass on their children and then there's long periods of stasis or stability or constancy within the biosystems the ecosystems the the way of life and then something else hundreds or thousands or you know tens of thousands of years later changes and again and the same thing for humans it's like for 97 to 99 percent of human history we lived in more or less sustainable communities that mimic the wisdom of the living world and that preserved the integrity of the living world upon which we depended and then only in the last three two to three percent of our species we've shifted into more of a human-centered anthropocentric and often city-based understanding where we're now living in a place and rather than preserving that place at all costs as the most sacred thing we need to do, we transform that place for human benefit. But then there's the ecological overshoot, the, 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 the degradation that comes along. And so that once we go into unsustainable cultures in the last six, that 7,000 years, we see over 120 examples of booms and busts, booms and busts. So times when progress was undeniably true and times when regress was undeniably true uh you know carrying capacity surplus more than enough energy and resources and then carrying capacity deficit where there's not enough energy and resources and my hunch is that one of the reasons why there's this binary in the minds of most many people in unsustainable cultures to either belief in perpetual progress or belief in the apocalypse, you know, is that that's sort of been the experience of much of the last six or 7,000 years. Mm. And then the question becomes, okay, we're now living in a global scale, carrying capacity surplus, I mean, deficit carrying, you know, where there's not enough resources and energy to maintain seven or eight or 9 billion humans. So we're in this inevitable bottleneck uh, of overshoot. And then how do we plant the seeds so that whatever, assuming humanity survives this bottleneck, which I think there's a pretty decent chance we could, we will, but not guaranteed for sure. Um, how do we plant the seeds of healthy culture, healthy religiosity, healthy spirituality, healthy green, ecologically, I call it eco-theo, which is for me, all sustainable cultures, one of the things they had in common was an eco-theo worldview, meaning the ecos, the ecology was related to as divine as a thou or series of thous that we're related to respectfully and honorably. And theo, whatever their understanding of the divine or the gods or goddesses or whatever, were present and revealed and expressed and, 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 and within the living world. And so how do we how do we reclaim that ecological wisdom of indigenous peoples, that ecological I-thou relationship to primary reality that is everything we depend upon um so that if our species is graced to be able to live another million or two million years before an asteroid or super volcano or something takes us out i mean we won't last forever no mammal our size lasts forever um we will have come home that's why i use the 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 parable of the, the prodigal species humanity coming home to the body of life um so anyway, so thanks for allowing me to yeah. sort of just. Yeah, it. no, that's great. That's great. And I want to, <clears throat> I want to build on what you're saying a little bit around, because you hit on something that is central to this idea of regeneration, which is disruption. Yes. And so in order, even for me to evolve my own thinking, so 
so I, I realize that's not evolving on the biological sense of evolution. Um, that doesn't happen when I'm on automatic. That doesn't happen when I'm in a mechanical, automatic way of being in the world. Something has to jar that thinking to create some space to regrow or to grow anew uh, thoughts and, and ideas. And so regenerative development for me at its, at its essence is about creating intentional, regular disruptions to my whole being, my mind, body, and spirit that allow me and offer me the opportunity to grow more fully into who I am, what I can contribute, consciousness about the world around me. And that process of disruption is so essential. Growth cannot happen without disruption on some level. Now, it doesn't have to be the catastrophic type disruption that we're talking about, but disruption is essential to evolution. And what I, the other aspect of that in that, that moment of sort of my own like awareness around where I think we are is that, that there's so, there's so much rich potential in this great transition in, in all transitions, in transitions of careers and transitions out in, into a living body and life, all of, you know, the birth of a child, the death of a relationship, whatever that may be, those transitions are so ripe with potential. And so we are facing that on very personal levels as people are losing their identities, their livelihoods, their communities. Um, we're facing it on a very global level. But that potential is what I want to dedicate myself towards focusing on and how that disruption that we are in the midst of becomes the nourishment for the growth to, as you said, to come home. Yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, I'm so glad that you went into that. And I'm curious though, how do you create, uh, co-create uh, regular uh, or periodic disruptions in your own life? Is there a practice? Is there a, like, like what tools help you do that? Uh, I think a lot of us could learn from that. Yeah, you, you need a community of practice that is deliberately ritualized, regularly designed to do that. Um, you can even go into some of the behavior change science and research around what it takes to actually, actually create growth and new behavior. So we're so stuck on like this next fix, six next fix, the quick ideas, the quick solutions. It takes three to five to eight years of 10% of your waking hours to shift your consciousness. So if you look at a 12-step program or a halfway house, those kinds of programs are designed to actually really create new behaviors, new ways of thinking and engaging and being in the world. Mm -hmm. And so you must engage in a community that is deliberately and intentionally disrupting your thinking toward evolving consciousness um, as often as possible. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, that's really at the heart of the community of practice that I'm a part of. Um, and so 
you know, we get together four times a year for a day and a half. And then we do, you know, regular calls on top of that um, on a format like this. And, um, you know, there's, there are those who are designing and leading those sort of disruptions that get you to literally kind of wake up. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, I, so I'm, I'm going into my own experience of life. I'm 60 years old and I have had a number of uh, communities of practice uh, that has supported me in that uh, from the, the three churches that I pastored from the mid 80s to the mid 90s to my work with Landmark Education and the Landmark Forum and all this sort of, you know, that whole educational process through Landmark Education. The men's work that I've done with the new warrior training and the uh, the the uh, uh, Bill Cowth, I just interviewed him just recently. He's a men's leader, but the the the, the mankind project, the new warrior training, has been a profound community of practice, especially their their I groups, the integration groups over time, um, and twelve step. I've been involved in twelve step for thirty years, and um, I support others in that process and and uh, receive support myself. And each of those in their own different, and I'm sure there are others that are just not come, popping to mind right now, but have been these practice sort of mini tribes or, or communities of, of, of support and, and, uh, and in different ways uh, and at different speed have been um, profound support for both the disrupting sort of the habitual instinctual uh, pattern and then um, uh, Gaining, yeah, supporting in a developing new habits, new patterns, new, more uh, life-giving, more on purpose, more clean and sober, um, but more um, generous, compassionate, authentic ways of, of being. For me, I know one of the things that's common to all of those that I just mentioned are sort of four things that I see at the heart of virtually any program of betterment or, or social contribution, which is humility, authenticity, responsibility and service that our lives don't work and our communities don't work if we're if we're not humble if we're arrogant or self-righteous um, rather than humble if we are inauthentic deceptive you know lying uh, rather than authentic in the support to be authentic if we're playing the blame game uh, rather than taking responsibility and and uh, for ever larger spheres and if we're simply serving our own self-centered wants drives, lusts, cravings, whatever, rather than serving something larger. Um, so yeah, and I, but I hadn't thought them of quite in the way that you just articulated. So you're helping me reframe some of my own experience in terms of communities of practice. So thank you. Well, you're welcome. Um, in, in, in that, I would like to um, point towards a couple of things that are particular about regeneration that are perhaps also a distinction from the way that you're thinking of communities of practice as well. One of the important aspects is, um, is around using living system frameworks. So, uh, and, and a lot of that is based out of the school of systematics. Um, so John Bennett uh, looking at, you know, what is a monad, a single, a dyad, a triad, a tetrad, which would be four, pentad, hexad, and, and using multi-termed frameworks to help deepen and expand 
one's ability to make sense of and work with dynamic, complex systems hmm. and to bring it up to a consciousness level, um, not which is inclusive of a sensitive energy, but it is not just sensitive energy, which is I'm being a good person, I'm present, I'm aware, I'm taking responsibility for myself, I care about you, I care about how you're, you are in the world. But to lift it up even to another level, which I believe is, a, is above that, right? So if, if maybe automatic is on the hierarchy lower than a sensitive, caring energy, conscious energy or conscious thought is um, even a little bit further up the, the ladder. And we use living system frameworks to, and living system principles to help us improve um, and regenerate the way that we think, the way that we work, the way that we understand the world. Um, but it's all very incumbent on me to do that. So there is no one saying, this is what's right, this is how it's done. It's more like, here is here is a way to think about this, try it on <laughs> um, and see if it works for you. Don't, don't accept it or reject it without your own application. Um, but these living systems frameworks and living systems principles are ones that I've heard you mention a couple times kind of mimicking nature or, or nature as model. Um, I, I think it's not quite that. I think that it is um, under it's understanding the principles of how life works and working from living systems principles. Now that doesn't come off in a single mm -hmm. catchy phrase, um, maybe um, aligning with that living systems. Um, but that notion of us being contributive and, and playing a role to be contributive members of society, it's not, of, of ecosystems, excuse me, um, being contributive members of ecosystems is more than mimicking nature. Mm -hmm. It is realizing our role and potential to be contributive in that life-giving force. Um, so permaculture is a, is a good example of that as, as a way to think about how are we accelerating succession how are we adding um, beneficial relationships between various plants and insects and water? Um, so we're playing an active role in a contributive way versus just sort of learning from nature and not being at conflict with it. Yeah, yeah, that's great and very helpful. Um, anybody watching or listening to this who really finds what you're saying attractive and wants to find a community of practice or a way of beginning to integrate this more deeply, what would you recommend to them? Yeah. Um, you know, I, um, I do a lot of work with Carol Sanford and, and she um, is, is getting on a bit in years. She's very uh, aware of and vocal about her, her own mortality. Um, but I would suggest that, you know, there are a couple, she leads several communities of practice um, around, she's just starting a new one up for parents. 
um, which I think has a tremendous amount of potential. Anyone who's interested in raising their children in a way that really um, honors and develops that child's unique potential and doesn't impose, you know, a sense of what's right and wrong and good and how you should be, um, but helps us as parents to uh, help that person develop into their full capability. Uh, so, so that should be good. She's, uh, she's starting one for women entrepreneurs. Um, so that, uh, I think that that's going to be a fabulous, um, a fabulous group. Um, and then the folks at Regenesis, um, the regenerative practitioner program, uh, that's, you know, it's, it's oriented towards people who are interested in doing place-based work. Um, but if that's something that folks are interested in, um, they are working on building sort of local nodes and hubs uh, of folks who are working on place-based regeneration. Um, in the agricultural space, Terragenesis is doing some, some great work. Um, and then the programming for CLEAR, which is one of the organizations that I run, the Center for Living Environments and Regeneration, our programming is currently on hold. We're doing some redesign and some reevaluation, but uh, you know, down the road, we we intend to uh, really build out some some additional communities of practice. Anything that you would like to share related to this whole, you know, what we titled this was post doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief grounding and gratitude. And so anything that you want to share related to that or anything that we didn't touch on that you saw in the, in the questions that I posed in the email that you would like to uh, address? I think we got through a lot of the current thinking um, that I have around these ideas right now. Um, yeah, I feel, I feel complete. Yeah, I feel like I've kind of shared where I'm at right now. What's your sense of what's possible, still possible, and but what's no longer possible? Like that whole 12-step thing, you know, let me accept the things that I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. What is your sense, I'm curious, of sort of that on a slightly larger scale? Mm -hmm. All right, so I'm going to um, try to answer them one at a time, and I might want you to go back to the second question. Sure. Uh, so your first question was, can you restate that one? Yeah. What has opened up for you, like in coming to terms mm. with the cascading problems of resource depletion, climate chaos, right. overshoot, et cetera, um, have you encountered stages of grieving that went beyond mere acceptance? Like, like what has opened up in terms of positive on the other side? Yeah. For me, um, that particular awakening pointed toward, helped to or, orient me toward the role that I can play um, in, in that, you know, if, if that, those are the times that I am to be here for and to, to live through, I reframed for me what role might I play and to serve as a kind of, you know, maybe as a kind of midwife or um, and to somehow 
see how to maybe help direct that potential that we talked about that's present in times of great transitions, mm -hmm. how to direct that um, to what you called home or realization of potential or mm -hmm. um, bringing, bringing us closer to alignment with, um, I guess the word that came up for me is source. But, yeah. yeah, that's great. Thank you. And the other question was related to what is your take on what is beyond our control and where we still can make a difference individually uh, and or collectively. In other words, what's your sense of what's no longer possible and then what still is possible? Yeah. Um, so in this kind of lifelong pursuit to understand myself, life, people, will, <laughs> kind of all of that. Um, the, the place that I land with that continues to be that it's around awakening consciousness and will in the applied practical work that I do every day. You know, so, so, you know, this has been a very kind of lofty, you know, 50,000 foot view kind of <laughs> take on, on philosophy and approach and, you know, all of that. But for me, that's, um, that plays out every day, every day in what is the, um, what is it that I can bring forward in, in some form of building capacity and capability in myself and those around me um, to help to, to do my uh, part to bring significance, meaning, um, and to, to regenerate spirit and will through, through that daily work of you know, whether I'm sitting there in a room with, you know, a, a business client and they've got their, their business units and their functions and everybody's, you know, plugging away at, at trying to get all these tasks done and, and make it all happen in some way um, to work to build capacity within that team um, to see greater significance, to see greater potential for the alignment of their thought and their work towards something that they think matters and that the world needs of them. Yeah. Um, so, so that's what I think is still possible. Uh, I do feel a little bit like, you know, like it hasn't hit hard here yet. Yeah. Um, and I could run to it, right? I could run to where it's hitting hard. And that thoughts crossed my mind. I'm not going to rule it out even. Um, but it's a, it's a weird place to be in right now, right? Like, you know, go home, have a nice dinner. Everything's comfortable. You know, I drive my car whenever I want to. My, you know, I turn down the heat when I'm cold. I, you know, I try to do all those things in moderation and be a good environmentalist. But, um, you know, jump on a plane when it's time to go to the next place. It's still all very 
normal and comfortable and um, just kind of weird to like have this sense of like impending yeah. collapse or reckoning or whatever it is, yeah. impending sense of doom, I suppose. <laughs> um, and to be like, well, what do you want to have for dinner tonight? You know, out of our like cornucopia of choices. Um, <laughs> exactly. And how culinarily wonderful can that possibly be? Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, so I don't, I don't know that I know enough to say what is or isn't possible. Mm -hmm. And I don't, and I don't know enough to say that we're for sure going back to sort of how I open. I'm not certain that we are on this collision course with, you know, Armageddon. No, <laughs> um, I, I, yeah. I don't know whether we're that. I, it seems to me that we, uh, where I come to is that there are certain things that we can say, kind of like, you know, we know that the earth goes around the sun. There's certain things we can say, not out of arrogance, but just out of overwhelming evidence. And that if every sustainable culture for which we, ha if every unsustainable culture for which we have evidence at some point isn't sustained, then we actually have some pretty good understanding of what the decline process looks like. And we're clearly midway in that. Then it's, it's not a faith statement to say that, yeah, in your husband's language, there is a day of reckoning. I, I, I like the, the quote from um, Robert Louis Stevenson. Sooner or later, we all sit down to a banquet of consequences. And I call that the great reckoning. Um, but I think yeah. that can also possibly be the great homecoming, you know, humanity, the prodigal species coming home to life, to, to reality, to the way things, the, the way things are. So uh, I don't see that as Armageddon, but I do see that as um, consequential. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so I have, I have no idea. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I have no idea how it's all going to shake out. And um, yes, there, there, there are always consequences. There's always, you know, the shifts afoot. Um, it certainly feels like that's where we are. Certainly looks that way, depending on what you sure. look at and, and how, but, um, but I think that, Continuing, continuing to be present to it is, um, and, and just present to life and working on myself and, and being of service, it's, it's all I can figure out what to do every day. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.